Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome. I'm here today with Gabrielle Jackson. She's the Associate Editor for Audio and Visual at Guardian Australia, and she's the author of Pain and Prejudice, a book that has been published in Australia, New Zealand, UK, Ireland, USA and Canada, and has also been optioned for documentary. Gabrielle will be talking about sexism in medicine, which is the topic of a book. Welcome, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, I really appreciate it because this is a topic close to my heart. I went in for an operation on pelvic mesh, have some pelvic mesh removed about 18 months ago, and it's been an interesting experience going through the doctors and finding out how little is actually known about the female gynecological Mm. system and everything else. So tell me how you got into this, what led to this book and what you found out. I have endometriosis and adenomyosis, two diseases that really quite common. Well, endometriosis is very common. About one in 10 women of reproductive age has the disease. It's been in the medical textbooks for over a century. There is a it, it's when uh, tissue similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside the uterus. So it's, it's tissue very similar to endometrium and it grows in places where it shouldn't and it causes inflammation and scarring. It can fuse organs in the pelvis together and it can create a lot of pain and other symptoms associated with chronic pain like headaches, fatigue, nausea, those kind of generalised symptoms of chronic pain that few doctors really understand very well to this day. So I suffered for a long time. I was first diagnosed at about 23 and I was really lucky to get a really great gynaecologist who did have an expertise in endometriosis and he was very sympathetic to me, lovely But I went on thinking that it was a disease about period pain. I didn't know the full extent of my disease. And gradually I accumulated lots of different, seemingly different illnesses, chronic back and hip pain, leg pain, these incredible bouts of chronic fatigue that would sometimes last months, all these sorts of nausea and dizziness, which kind of made me label myself a hypochondriac because I didn't want people to call me a hypochondriac behind my back. So I just thought I would joke about it, get in first, because I could not see any of my friends suffering in the way that I did. So it wasn't until about 2015 when I was really quite ill again, and I did know that the endometriosis, you know, my, the gynecologist, what I saw when I was 23, did explain that it grows back and I'd have to come back and see him. So I was aware that the endometriosis was getting worse and I needed to go and see another gynecologist. But I'd had a really bad accident and I'd had surgery on my shoulder and I just wasn't up for more surgery. So I went to this conference put on by Endoactive, which is this patient advocacy organisation, and they had got all Australia's leading experts on endometriosis to come to Sydney University one day and tell patients about their disease because they recognised that this was a disease that no one really understood. 
not the medical profession, really, and especially not patients. And lots of patients were being given bad advice and still old wives' tales and things. And it was that that conference that I really realised how little I knew about the disease I had and I wanted to write about it for The Guardian. So I did that and then I spoke to my editor and she spoke to her editor in London and we decided to make it a global investigation. So we had reporters in the US and the UK and Australia all working on it and just went off, you know, like a million people read it on the first day. And we did a call out asking people to tell us about their experience. And I just couldn't believe the hundreds of women from all around the world, like I'm talking all over Europe and North and South America and Asian countries, Nepal, Thailand, Australia, New Zealand, Armenia, Russia, they all were saying the same thing that they were being told they were hypochondriacs. They Some were called hysterical. Some were told it was a type A personality that caused endometriosis. They were given all these just bizarre, um, told that pregnancy could cure it, which it doesn't, told that after menopause it would stop, which it doesn't, told that a hysterectomy was a definitive cure, which it isn't. And I just started thinking, what is going on in medicine that doctors in every country are telling women of all ages and all socioeconomic backgrounds the same thing, basically that their disease is their fault. And I thought I wanted to look into it more because I couldn't understand. The investigation we did on endometriosis was really focused on endometriosis, but what I realised from the things that people were saying was that it seemed bigger than just one disease. It seemed like women themselves were being discounted and not taken seriously and their pain and suffering was thought not to really matter. When I started looking into medicine a bit more and and when I actually just realised that medicine doesn't really know about women's health that much at all because they have never really studied female biology and that just blew me away. And when I realised that, that's when I thought I have to write a book because this is more than an article. Sorry about that very long-winded answer. No, it was great. (laughs) So um, one of the really interesting things you found out during the book is or one of the things that really fascinated me was around the medical experiments and gender involved in medical experiments. Talk to me about Mm. that because that to me is the beginning of everything. Yeah, Um, so it's it's really, it's quite a contradiction to me because they don't really study the female body. They don't look at our biology. They don't do scientific tests like they do on men, but they're happy to experiment on us. Let's try this. Let's see if that works. So often throughout the history of medicine, theories were developed about why women were feeling this way, why women, it was recognised that women have certain conditions that men didn't seem to have. But they always blamed it on, uh, you know, the womb. It was originally the womb because that was the difference between men and women. So they thought that that was the only difference, so therefore everything was, like, put down to the womb. At one point they thought it was a wandering womb and they would put one of the treatments was they put nice-smelling herbs at the uh, vaginal entrance and bad-smelling things at the nose to coax the womb back into place. At some point they just started 
well, they did female genital mutilation. They cut out women's clitorises because they thought that masturbation was causing hysteria. And they did that widely. That was practiced widely in Europe and America. They also just started removing women's ovaries because they blamed the conditions on, well, what do we know? Let's do this. But the most brutal um, experiments were done on black women, slaves in America, and, and they were done on without anaesthetic on um, trying to repair fistulas, which obviously are a really severe problem for women and can lead to lifelong suffering. So it's often defended as in, oh, the doctor thought he was doing a good thing. Well, <laughs> they've never experimented like that on men with no anaesthetic. So I don't really think the justification stands up to any kind of scrutiny, really. And so there's always, but there's this history of experimenting on live women without any subsequent dedication to scientific study, which I just find bizarre. It's really interesting because I ended up having to have pelvic mesh because when I had my first child, my pelvis didn't expand very much. And so I was very, very fit at the time. I went into labour and he, I just could not get him out. And the obstetrician said, look, we'd rather not give you a Caesar if we don't have to, so I'm going to try and pull him out. So he, my eldest was a forceps delivery, but mm. John, my husband said the obstetrician actually had his foot on the table oh trying God. to pull Jamie out, which he did, but he damaged the nerves in my legs, took a few days before I could walk properly. Jamie's oh. head was a mess. But oh. what I wasn't aware of was he caused all sorts of problems internally because it ripped my bowel it ripped my bladder oh my um, God. it pulled being in labor so long sort of I pushed my cervix and my uterus completely out of place mm. and because I'd stayed fit my whole life I've always been a swimmer and a horse rider and stuff I'm very very lucky nobody noticed until I said look there's something wrong I don't feel right and this was after my fourth child had been born oh. and that was when they started operating on me and after the second operation was when they used pelvic mesh but again that they were told so the mesh is kind of for people who don't know it's kind of like a little rectangular thing and it's got four wings off it that are supposed to be attached to the pelvis and I'm telling you this because we're talking about experimentation on women here. So mm. these wings are supposed to be attached to the pelvic bone. He attached one of the wings to my cervix. So immediately the whole thing concertinaed. With another wing, rather than go around my muscle, he actually opened up one of my stomach muscles, the psoas muscle, and put the wing through the psoas muscle. I couldn't understand for years why my muscle kept going into spasm. Um. So immediately it was put in because he detached one wing to the cervix. I had all sorts of problems. So I've had four operations to try and correct that initial operation that he did with the mesh. Fortunately, it's all out now. Mm. Um, but there's so much scar tissue. Yeah, It's a bit of a mess. And it was all an experimentation. He thought he'd try something different and he didn't want to do that. And it was an experimentation. Mm. So... Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a real um, issue, I think, in women's health that there seems to be 
less scrutiny about just trying things. And the, the tragedy of uh, vaginal mesh is that there are lots of mesh products that really do work on other things, on other areas of the body that now are not being used because of this absolute disaster and tragedy. And it could have been so many women complained for such a long time before they were taken seriously. And, and that's what I mean about it's not just medicine that doesn't take women's pain and suffering, but the reason medicine doesn't take women's pain and suffering seriously is because society doesn't take women's pain and suffering seriously. It's not considered an important thing. It's kind of considered the lot of a woman to be in pain. And women who do complain are seen as whinges and difficult and they get a reputation and doctors don't want to see them. And it's just a, becomes a, a cycle that is really dangerous and damaging to women's health. Where do you think that comes from? It comes from the patriarchal society we live in. Men, the society we live in is designed for men. It's designed for men to be in charge and to be comfortable. And women are supposed to serve them, not demand their own humanity, <laughs> their own rights to live a free and healthy life. But we're supposed to look after people who are sick, not demand that we be looked after when we're sick. I think it's so deeply rooted in our society. And you know, medicine is a really ancient institution and a really elite institution. And institutions like that support the status quo. It takes a long time for them to change. And it takes huge social pressure within medicine and without from outside medicine to actually change it. But it has shown that it is capable of change. In 50 years, look how the treatment of breast cancer changed. And again, that didn't change because medicine decided they should pay attention to it. It decided because women started their own fundraising groups. They raised the money and they said, with this money, we decide what gets studied. We decide the studies that get done. And they took control of the research. And that is what changed about breast cancer. It came from women demanding better treatment for themselves and making sure that happened by controlling the money. And same with AIDS. Look, it was a death sentence not so long ago and now people can live with it. You know, medicine is capable of rapid change, but not on its own. <laughs> So that's so, what we're here for, I guess. <laughs> it is what we're here for because uh, this isn't something that's particularly well known. I consider myself to be fairly widely read. I didn't mm. know most of what you said in the book. Mm. And one of the things, another of the things that I was really shocked about was when you talked about the medical experiments and almost all medical experiments, like from the lab, all the way through are carried out on male subjects because mm -hmm. the female rats, rabbits, whatever, are there to reproduce, but the males are more expendable. So, and we've got completely different hormones. We actually don't know how our hormones interact with the medicines because the vast majority of um, experiments carried out on male subjects. Just talk me through that because you know all the facts and figures about that. Yeah, it's it's really extraordinary. It was one of the main things that I discovered that shocked me, that it wasn't just human clinical trials that really weren't studying women. So it wasn't until the 1990s that they made a rule that the clinical trials had to include women in them. It was so ridiculous. Even things like studies on uh, breast cancer were carried out on men. I mean, it was 
actually absurd, the lengths they went to to not study women. And they use the excuse that, oh, you know, women get pregnant and they have all their eggs and when they're born, so if the drug uh, affects their eggs, they might be sterile. Often thalidomide is given as the excuse for that. But the problem with thalidomide was not that they tested it, they did a trial on pregnant women, it's that they didn't. And so the experiment was live. And that's what happens to this day. So many drugs are not tested on enough women still today, even though it's mandatory most of the time to include women in your human clinical trial. Still, only about 30% of human clinical trial subjects are female. And most of the studies done in animals, the preclinical trials, are still done on male animals. And lots of different reasons are given. They say, oh, the estrus cycle, which is kind of not completely equivalent to the menstrual cycle, but like the menstrual cycle, will interfere with results. It's like, well, if it does, what do we want to know? I mean, all the COVID vaccine trials, not a single one of them studied how it interacts with the menstrual system. Not a single one of them. That's 51% of the human population that is not being studied for major side effects. And that just happens all the time. So in the study of diseases, it happens. So even lab animals are mostly all male. Everything we know about human health basically comes from the study of men or male animals even in diseases that mostly affect women. So in chronic pain, for example, most pain drugs, 80% of them have been tested on male animals or male humans. 70% of people with chronic pain are women. So there is just not adequate knowledge of what Real drugs really work on chronic pain because they're not being tested in the people who suffer from it. And uh, some other studies have shown that disease itself, so heart disease is becoming much more well-known and publicised now that women have slightly different symptoms of heart attacks and that means that they're not treated as well. So they die more from the same uh, heart attacks. And even though that is known, Still recently, like in 2018, there was a big study done on major tertiary hospitals in Australia that showed that women having the severe kind of heart attack are half as likely to be treated properly when they present to emergency departments and twice as likely to die within six months because of that poor treatment. That's in Australia, in our best hospitals, to this day, that is happening. And they think that Almost all diseases have some gender differences. They just don't know what they are yet. But we also know that there's a delay in diagnosis for lots of for, for major cancers that are experienced by men and women in women compared to men. And maybe that might be another reason. It might not just be that doctors are ignoring women's complaints. It may very well be that the symptoms are slightly different and that's why it's not being picked up. But we just don't know because we haven't done the necessary research to find that out. So in terms of what women can do for themselves, what do you think the difference is that we need to take on board as women? But this is a really difficult question because a difficult woman, quote, unquote, in medicine is someone no one wants to treat. And let me tell you, word gets around. 
if you are a woman of any minority status, if you're an Aboriginal woman or you are a transgender person or you are obese woman or any kind of other thing that makes you, gives you some minority status, you're less likely to be taken seriously in the first place. If you start demanding better treatment when you go into the emergency room, then the opposite is going to happen to you. You're going to get a reputation as a drug seeker, probably if you're in pain, as someone who is like borderline personality disorder is another label that they like to give difficult women. There's all sorts of ways that you can be stigmatised and ignored and put in the too hard basket. So I would never like to say to any women, it shouldn't always be on us to do better. It has to be on medicine to do better. If you're a privileged white woman like you and I are, I think we should use our power to advocate for better treatment for all women and really listen to the most underprivileged women in society of what they're telling us and the treatment they're being given and try to start there in how we organise ourselves and the ad- kind of advocacy we do. It's really difficult to say there's nothing we can do. I hate that answer. Like I think there are things we can do. But I think the things that we can do are trust ourselves. We know our body, right? And if we go to a doctor who doesn't believe us, a lot of us can try another doctor or do a bit more research. And that's another thing I'm scared to say these days because there's all these (laughs) weird types of people telling you to do your own research without knowing what research means. So I then go to reputable patient groups (laughs) and reputable newspapers and health journals and things like that to find some information about your disease or your symptoms And then try another doctor or another health professional. It can be really hard, but so many problems are we accept as women because we kind of think we're supposed to suffer and we leave things until they get late. Like when I left my last surgery for endometriosis, things just got so much worse and I didn't realise that by putting up with it and delaying treatment, it has an echo effect that actually made the symptoms worse. And if I'd been a bit more on top of it, I could have prevented maybe some of the worst symptoms. But I think, yeah, believing ourselves, I think one thing I think is highly underrated is like getting a GP (laughs) that you know, that knows you, that you trust, going to that same GP. I have the most wonderful GP and she is such an advocate for me she knows when something's not normal for me she knows who I am and she knows I'm not a hypochondriac and she's brilliant and I think that's often the case when you eventually find a really good GP they can be your best advocate in helping you find the care you need yeah it's really interesting what you're saying because there is an expectation that pain is part of life Because when I went to the persistent pain management program, I mean, how many people know there is such a thing as a persistent pain management program? I know. And there is, guys. Yeah. And you get it for free. It's actually on Medicare if you're in Australia. (laughs) Like, go and find out. Get your GP to find out about the local ones because they are amazing. Yeah. Um. But when I went for my interview before I went there, because you go in and they show you around and they find out your background and everything. And this was before I had the pelvic mesh out. And it was my 
gynecologist that I insisted that insisted that I go on this persistent pain management program she said you are in pain I'm like yeah but I just live with it you know yeah. I've just learned to deal with it I just kind of work my way around it and then because she listened to me and because the doctors at the persistent pain clinic listened to me I was like I was just started crying because I'm like mm. I shouldn't be in pain there should be no, I can't imagine a life without some kind of discomfort without yeah. some kind of limitation and it is expected we expect to you know I'm going well I've had four kids I've done this that and the other I throw myself off horses all the time mm. there's always an excuse but what if you don't have to live with the pain exactly I had a very similar experience before and after my surgery. I had a colonoscopy to check. They they suspected there was endometriosis on the bowel and there was quite significant damage to the bowel. And the colorectal surgeon was talking me through my options. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this, blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me and said, you don't have to live like this. And I just burst out crying. He's like, this isn't normal and you, you don't have to have that life. And it was only after then that I, that I kind of started adding up the limits that I'd placed on my life because of this pain. It wasn't a full life. You know, I had limited my social outings. I had to plan work things around my period, around sometimes I would just not be able to show up to things I'd committed because the pain was just unexpected. and. Yeah, and I think that's something we don't do as women. We don't count the opportunities lost because of these limitations that we have because we kind of accept that's just part of who we are. But And, of course, pain is a part of life, right? Like, So <laughs> you can't expect to live pain-free, but we have developed such a tolerance for this very high level of, I think Dr Susan Evans always says to me, a bit of pain is normal. When it regularly interferes with your day-to-day -day life, then it's not normal and you have to get it seen too. And, yeah, it sounds like for you and me both, it was interrupting, interfering with our day-to-day -day life, like quite regularly, not just occasionally, and we were just putting up with it. So I think that just talking about it, the act of us talking about it and saying this, is, this doesn't have to be like this is really radical and it hopefully will encourage others to recognise that life doesn't have to be lived that way. One of the reasons I started the podcast is because I don't want my daughters hitting menopause knowing zero about mm. menopause like I did. Us Western society, we've spread out, we've lost that intergenerational connection where the older relatives and older friends can tell you what's going to happen or say, oh, this is normal or no, that's not normal. And I want my daughters to be aware of it. And I also want them to be aware of the ability. They ha they don't have to live in pain because I know they both suffer quite badly from period pains. I never did, can't relate to it, but it's not normal. Mm. Just because you're having your period does not mean that you have to lie with a hot water bottle on your belly for three days because you can't move. That's mm. not normal, guys. Yeah, that is really powerful. It's such a powerful message. And sometimes because it's been so hush-hush and taboo to talk about, often um, researchers found that endometriosis and some other painful conditions that can be hereditary. So often mothers and grandmothers have said to their daughters, oh, that's normal, I had that too, because they had no way of knowing it wasn't normal actually. 
And so because when we make things taboo, like we've made everything to do with a woman's period or sexuality, it really encourages myths to form and for bad information to get passed on because there's no accepted normal. Normal is just what is your normal, but that's why normal is such a difficult word to use. But, yeah, I think you're right. It's not normal when it's three days in bed you can't move. No, <laughs> sorry, that's, that's not normal. <laughs> No, and talking about that taboo topic of sexuality, female sexuality and female genitalia and everything, we have to move beyond that if we're actually going to be able to feel comfortable going to the doctors and saying, no, this, there's something wrong here, mm-hmm. because otherwise you're just not going to be comfortable. I still hate, you know, I've had four children, and I still hate going to the doctor and having my, you know, all the, um, what do you call it, the cervical smears and everything yeah. like that. It's just like, oh, no, I can't stand <laughs> it. And it's something that we need to accept as that's part of life. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. It, there's nothing wrong. I was really shocked when you said in your book that the full map of the female genitalia wasn't made until 2009, 2010. Is that right? Yeah, it, yeah that's true. I mean, in very early textbook, the German anatomist had included the full clitoris, the part underneath as well as the external part, and somehow it was just dropped out of textbooks somewhere along the way. And the clitoris came to be thought of as this little size of a P-shaped nub that comes out from the top of your labia. Well, that's only really the tip of the iceberg and the structure of the clitoris is underneath the vulva. And that was only properly mapped anatomically by a female surgeon this century. And when they do prostate surgery for men, they very carefully map out the nerve endings to avoid adversely affecting erectile function or, you know, sexual function. And that has never been done in women's pelvic surgery. It took a female surgeon to say, hey, what's going on here? We need to map, properly map the nerve pathways. The clitoris is a very, very nerve intensive organ as you can imagine (laughs) um and that's only been done this century it's just amazing and she she told us we interviewed her at the guardian and she told us that doctors basically said she was being a bit pervy by doing this work by mapping human anatomy she was being pervy i mean how crazy is that And, and a lot of doctors still won't know about the full shape of the clitoris so it's just extraordinary it is on that note I know we've got to finish up now thank you so much Gabrielle oh thank you so much for having me and thanks for making this podcast I think it's really important and I'm really glad to be on here oh I really appreciate it thank you thanks for joining us this week on menopause marriage and motherhood Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.